Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 233. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And we're continuing coverage from the just wrapped Denver Film Festival. That's right. CFF 42 is where it all went down. What a fantastic festival this year. And I actually got to go to one of the centerpiece red carpet presentations. That's coming up next week in an episode you're not going to want to miss. But that's next week. This week, I'm talking about a film that I was extremely excited for when I saw the list of films at this year's fest. I went through the list, I saw who was going to be here in person, and a name stuck out at me. The film was called You Don't Know Me. Now, Know Me is spelled N-O-M-I. And I go, why do I know that name? That's kind of an unusual name. Where is that from? So as I googled it, I clicked on it, and I go, oh my god, this is a documentary about showgirls. Holy crap. And then I read about it, and it's a film that takes commentary from all these people that have examined Showgirl's second life after its release in 1995. So on this week's show, I've got Jeffrey McHale. And Jeffrey is the director, the editor, the producer. In a lot of ways, he's kind of a one-man shop when it comes to You Don't Know Me. But this started as a passion project on the side for him. Something he just cut on his laptop at a kitchen table. And the reason he did is because he found Showgirls a little bit later after the fact. Granted, I knew about it right away. I was 14 when this thing came out, so you can imagine how jazzed I was that Jesse Spano was going to be naked for two hours. So I was raring to see this, and when I finally did, it was very confusing. Like, it's a vexing movie. It's very much about sex, yet it's somehow one of the least sexy movies you've ever seen. And it was savaged at the time. Critics hated it. Audiences hated it. It was just raked over the coals, one Razzie after Razzie after Razzie. And Jeffrey documents this evolution. It started out as a piece of shit, right? People looked at it, they go, that movie's a piece of shit. But it took on a second life just because the movie is so unusual and so assaultive and so like in your face and just plain weird that some people started to view it as a masterpiece. The third act of the movie, I think people have unusual readings of Showgirls. And so he deems that a masterpiece of shit, which I think is a beautiful turn of phrase. And one of the things that comes up again and again is the definition of camp. Now, according to Susan Sontag, camp is failed seriousness. And having just watched Showgirls this morning as I was cutting this episode together, I can tell you I think failed seriousness is the perfect description of this movie. It's a movie that takes itself deathly seriously, yet is just so bizarre. People don't talk like this. People don't act like this. And one of the things that comes up in this episode is we say Joe Esserhaus and his script seem to be like what a 13-year-old imagines adults do at night. And I think that's perfect. Needless to say, I love this movie. This was one of my favorite things about Denver Film Festival this year. Oh my God, this movie was pure catnip for me. Because one, I saw Showgirls when it came out. And I think I even taped it, like, off of Cinemax or something. So I had it. I watched it a number of times. And not for the reasons that you expect a teenage boy to watch it. I'll just make that clear right now. But because I couldn't stop thinking about just how freaking strange it was. Then I got really into online film criticism. And I would read that constantly. I didn't bring this up in the episode, but I think I've said this on the show before. I always wanted to get called in to my corporate office about my internet habits because I was on a lot of really boring conference calls that sort of tangentially concerned me. And I'd spend that time reading like the AV Club or the Dissolve or Roger Ebert's archives, just reading movie reviews of films I had no intention of seeing just because I like the writing. I like the analysis. It reminds me of grad school. And so the fact that there's a movie that features a bunch of talking heads, none of whom you ever see, they're just audio, dissecting a piece of trash like Showgirls, man, this movie felt like it was made exactly for me. Now, a quick caveat. I went into this episode really, really jazzed up. And as I looked at my notes for the questions that I had prepared for Jeffrey, I go, oh shit, I don't really have questions here. All I wrote down were a bunch of scenes that I liked. 
And I go, well, that's not going to make for a good interview. So I was kind of improvising. I was trying not to fanboy too hard. I was trying not to be too gushy. I don't know how well I achieved that, but whatever. You Don't Know Me is a terrific, terrific documentary. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Whether or not you've even seen Showgirls, if you like film criticism at all, if you like talking about culture, if you like talking about a director's oeuvre, which I know is an impossibly pretentious term, again, I don't really care. This is your film. Because there's a lot more about Paul Verhoeven. There's a lot about why queer audiences have embraced this film. There's just a ton here. And the insight he gets to and the propulsive nature of this thing, the way he cuts it together is so clever and so creative. I can't say enough nice things about it. But I'm going to stop now at the risk of being too gushy, which I promise to try not to do. So that's probably enough for me. And I'm not even going to do any plugs here in the front end. This is episode 233 of the John of All Trades podcast. I've got Jeffrey McHale. He is the director, editor, and producer of You Don't Know Me, an awesome documentary about the second and even third life of the movie Showgirls, and his episode starts right now. Um, it's been great. You know, uh, Denver's a beautiful city, and, you yeah. know, I was really excited to come here and bring Nomi and it's, it's just been it's been fun well it looks like you've been doing the tour of festivals yeah what yeah. number is this for you do, do you count you know, that way I, it's hard to keep track um it she when i say she then film Nomi has gone to uh travel the world uh germany new zealand australia taiwan uh south korea um i didn't unfor- unfortunately go to those i went to london i just got back from london oh, okay um so you made it to that one that yep, seems good yep, yep that was awesome <laughs> and uh so this is jeffrey McHale, the i don't know what to call you the director of you don't know me yeah director and then who also edited and produced right. and wrote <laughs> too well i mean this thing was done as sort of a labor of love in your spare time right yep Exactly. Yeah, I am a television editor by by day, by trade, and uh, I just kind of this this is such a micro budget approach to filmmaking. Right. Um, I was able to explore the topic on my own, um, on my laptop from my kitchen table, uh, on my own time, and and just kind of see see what see what happened. Well, it, it's amazing to me because as someone who was fourteen when Showgirls came out, so mm-hmm. I was right in that sort of sweet spot where yeah. I was amped for it. I'm like, really? NC-17? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. perfect. I'm in. And then got really, really into film criticism. Mm-hmm. This thing was like pure catnip for yeah, me. Yeah. So uh, I was jazzed. Have you found that to be true across the world, not just in the U.S.? What, that 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 people are into it? or, or yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... There is, there seems to be a certain age where the younger you go, the less people are aware, you know, are familiar with, with it. Um, cause it is, you know, we're now approaching the 25th anniversary, but, um. Yeah, if you were born in like 1990 or so. Yeah, you, someone would have to really show it to you. Or you'd have yeah. to be like deep into film criticism and yeah. want to, like, you're the type of person who will go back and watch like All About Eve. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, the, it has the, the thing that's kind of surprised me the most is, uh, you know, I knew that we would have like a very, uh, loyal and dedicated fan base to tap into cause that's, we're, <laughs> right. we're, we're there. And, um, but as far as the, you know, beyond that, you know, it's gotten, you know, a lot of play in mainstream festivals, you know, um, very prestigious festivals. And then also like the cult genre horror yeah. festivals we saw we've also kind of had an interesting run at which makes sense really? cuz it's Verhoeven yeah well sure yeah i mean Verhoeven if people know Verhoeven they probably know him from RoboCop yeah. and from Total Recall and i i read an essay about Total Recall talking about that so that movie came out when i was like 9 and it's an absolute garden of delights mm-hmm. um an old lady swears at Schwarzenegger and, call, and says, fuck you, you asshole, at him. <laughs> and, you know, there's a, a woman with three breasts and, you know, like people's heads explode. And it's it's an absolute garden of delights. And Showgirls was kind of the same. So I was jacked for it when I found mm-hmm. out it was him. Yeah. Because without knowing a lot about filmmakers at the time, knowing what he'd done before and reading a little bit about that, I go, okay, uh, I'm amped up for this. And then I saw it. And the thing was just so vexing. <laughs> It, it was absolutely baffling watching yeah. this movie. Yeah. Because 
It's a movie about sex, very explicitly, that mm-hmm. is one of the unsexiest movies exactly. I've ever seen. Yeah. Even at 14, when I couldn't get enough, right? Uh-huh. And there's nudity all through this thing. I'm like, I am oddly not turned on at all. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the people you feature in this movie talks about that. Yeah. Right? He, he does like running commentary, right? He, he is, he's been, um, you know, he's our unofficial showgirls ambassador. David Schmader <laughs> was actually, uh, was introduced to the film by a friend in 1999. They watched it at, uh, you know, home viewing and he watched it again. And after that, uh, a friend was like, you know, he, he kind of prepped his friends and like, this is the movie. This is what happened now. Enjoy. And the friend that was there, you know, was on the board of the Northwest Film Forum up in Seattle and was uh-huh. like, you are really good at this. You should you know, do this for a live audience. And so he started doing these, uh, what he calls annotated live screenings of showgirls where he would play the film, but then kind of pause and, you know, give people, you know, his insights along the way. And he'd been doing that for a long time. Um, and always afraid he was going to get a cease and desist from MGM. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then finally, uh, he got a call and then they left him a voicemail. He was sure it was the cease and desist, but they actually wanted him to do the commentary track on the, the DVD of the re-release. So it's like so, the dream, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't even have Paul Verhoeven on the commentary track. It's only David <laughs> Schmader. So the fact that they were, you know, kind of MGM was embracing it as, you know, what it, it had become, you know, was kind right. of incredible. Well, and it's funny because. One of the things you address in this that I think is so fascinating is the revisionist history about Mm -hmm. it, because now you'll hear people like Paul Verhoeven or, you know, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley on Chelsea lately Mm -hmm. saying something like, uh, you know, it was always sort of over the top and Mm -hmm. fun. And you go, no way. Intended. Yeah. And you do a great job of undercutting that. Yeah. I think that was the, the evolution of the cast and the crew's. Um, defense and their thoughts on it was very interesting. You know, as, as a fan of Showgirls, you know, you kind of just scour the internet for interviews or, you know, and see if you can pull out any insight of what, what really happened. And so I think when people find out, like, oh, it's a documentary about Showgirls, like, I want to know how the, how this thing happened. And that's the urge. But with something as unique as Showgirls, I, I kind of saw this as the cast and crew's job was done and <laughs> us, the audience, has taken it and made it into what it has become. So it, I was less concerned about, you know, their defense now because oh, sure, it's yeah. changed over the years. So, you know, I, I think it's more about our relationship to films and the way that we view them and how that for something like Showgirls has continued to evolve and will, you know, we're not done with it. No, no, we're certainly not. And and not to be too much of a, of a neckbeard dweeb here about <laughs> this, but I wrote my master's thesis on a theory called constitutive rhetoric, which says that, uh, it's one thing to have intent, mm-hmm. right? And intent is interesting, but only to a point. Mm-hmm. Once something exists, it calls an entirely new audience into being. And that, to me, is what's actually interesting. Mm-hmm. And once it's sort of out into the public, it no longer belongs to you. Mm-hmm. That's true of everything. And I always bring up the example of the White Stripes making Seven Nation Army. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think they went out m- intending to make a song that would be chanted by soccer fans all across the world. Yet that's what that song is best known for. Mm-hmm. And so something like Showgirls, whatever its intent was, and you know we can debate that all day, and that's kind of a fool's errand. It is. <laughs> like, what is it now? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the rubber meets the road for me. And it leads me into this question. Like, how did you come to start this little passion project on the side? What ultimately brought you to it? You know, I uh, had been a fan of Showgirls ever since I saw it. When did you see it? It was about I, late. I came to it late in life. Okay. It was about 10 years after it had been released and it had already become kind of come a queer cult classic. And I was with a friend, um, hanging out in his apartment in Chicago one night and he was like, Oh my gosh, you haven't seen Showgirls. We need, we walked <laughs> over to his library and popped it out and put it in the DVD player. And you know, my mind was blown. I was like, this was not what I thought. <laughs> this is not what I thought we would be seeing. And it just is, it just, it just doesn't stop. You know, the film just is insane and I've never, it's like nothing I've ever seen. And so, you, you know, couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. You? you know, and then just watching it, you know, you, it's one of those films that, you know, I'd like, like to watch like at least once a year, you know, and nice, you kind yeah. of, you notice something new every time. And so I'd always been a fan and I was actually at the, 20th anniversary screening in Los Angeles, which is at the end of our, of know me, the end of my film where, um, they did, um, they do these, ho- these screenings in, um, the Hollywood forever cemetery. Uh, and it's fantastic. Thousands of people show up and sometimes you'll have 
occasionally you'll have a, ca- a cast or crew, someone associated with the film, come and uh, introduce the film or you know say a little, um, answer a few questions afterwards. Yeah, just a little spiel. Yeah, but I mean, we all signed up for Showgirls, not even thinking anybody would be there and yeah. the fact that elizabeth berkeley came and introduced the film and that you know she, this was her first kind of public embrace of it um yeah. in such a beautiful way you know and she was like this is the first time i've experienced this film with an audience that enjoyed I, it i which, didn't realize you were there for that yeah so i was yeah i was one of those four thousand people wow. screaming in the in the very very back <laughs> well that was like redemption for her yeah and, and it, that is probably the most uplifting moment in the entire film Thanks. where you see her mm-hmm. And you, you can see a wash over her face. And at first, she's sort of a little bit guarded, mm-hmm. but that mask falls mm-hmm. and falls in a very real way. And you can tell she's overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. Yeah, as everybody there was. You know, yeah. I mean, like, I like to say it was the closest thing I've had to a religious experience. <laughs> um, you know, we, you could hear the, you know, you could hear the reaction kind of like slowly build, you know, yeah. once people started to realize it was, it was her there. And, um, it was beautiful. And after that, uh, I just was kind of wanted to scratch at my own curiosities about like why this thing has kind of endured. And so I started to dive into everything that had been written about it and like all the art and media that had been created about showgirls. And that's where I kind of found the core voices were the, were the people who contributed to the afterlife of it. Yeah. And you've got, I mean, you've clearly got the editing chops because this thing moves along in a very brisk way. And the way that you pull out some of the themes in it uh, that that occur again and again with Verhoeven vomiting mm, and bizarre, yeah, like just too weird, <laughs> and uh, like champagne being poured all over people, yeah, yeah, like these themes just keep coming up. Chips, like uh-huh. <laughs> uh, obsessions with uh, fingernails, and and you go, that is too weird. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious, how long? Like, first of all. How much were you into Paul Verhoeven before Showgirls? I was a fan, not a huge fan. Um, I think the first Paul Verhoeven film I actually saw was Starship Troopers. So, oh, sure, yeah. Um, and then I kind of went back and watched some of the earlier ones. But I hadn't seen any of his um, his work from the Netherlands until starting this project. And so that was really like mind-blowing, you know, going back and seeing his early work um, and just starting to, you know, I didn't really anticipate having those you know, being able to pull that, all of that out. But once you started seeing one and then you're like, Oh, there's another, there's another, there's another in this. So, you know, as an editor, you know, I basically loaded each film into premiere and then watched it. And then as soon as there was a reoccurring thing, pop up, you know, just pop a marker down, pop a marker down. So that when, you know, cause I, I didn't know what I would need it for, but I'm like, I'll, there's gotta be something. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So then just, just how, how to kind of catalog everything. When you started making, you don't know me. Did you have an agenda? Like, did you have something that you thought you were going to find? Like, did you go into this expecting to find something? And did that change in the process of actually making it? I guess when I first started, I, you know, you, I felt like it was important to figure out how this thing happened, as I, you know, as I mentioned. But as the picture kind of started to reveal itself, I found it less important to kind of under, like, to kind of, What's it, right to just to to figure it out and more to understand the relationship and just how our our it, that's changed over the years and so I also wanted to make sure that we were having like a honest discussion about showgirls. I was <laughs> as a fan, I didn't want to just gush over it for ninety minutes, so I wanted right. to include critical voices, and that was actually one of the the harder things. Was I went back and looked at all the early reviews, which were just savage and. Yeah, and kind of unfair, too. Uh, completely unfair, right. yeah. It, it was just it, hearing those things. I mean, even that – every time I watch it, even that, that um, uh, Gene Siskel always just stings me so bad. Yeah. you know, Because it's like you, this, is, this isn't critique. Your, 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 com- your critique is you know, her physical appearances, and, and that is just not – No. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, it's an exercise in bear baiting, yeah. essentially. It, it's terrible. Like, that's all, that's all it is. And when, when you go – like, it was a race to the bottom in terms of wordplay. Mm-hmm. And I think you – one of your critics actually uses that term Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely correct because it's like you guys have misfired on this so badly and I'm not entirely sure why. Right. Yeah. I think it was 
my I mean my my opinion is is that this was you know Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus came off of a huge hit which was Basic Instinct, um, and which they had to make like significant cuts to get it down to the R rating that the <laughs> right. studio uh, needed it to be. And Paul had been very vocal about how frustrating that was for him, you know, to to cut into his film. And so he with this next one, Basic Instinct was such a huge hit that they basically MGM gave them the green light to make an NC seventeen film. So. Knowing that, I think the critics were like, you had this opportunity to, um, you know, to, you, you don't have any restrictions placed on you, right. and, and this is what, this is what you're giving us. <laughs> so, so they almost felt betrayed? Yeah, and so I think that that also kind of played into the anger at which, you know, right. um, the vitriol. But, you know, place that on Paul and Joe, not on, you know, the cast. Yeah, don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really, really unfair. Yeah. To that point, I, I hadn't thought of this story in a very long time, but I had a media professor tell me he was explaining two French terms. One is, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's like <laughs> plaisir. The other one is jouissance. And plaisir is sort of surface level enjoyment. Jouissance is a deeper, almost religious level of enjoyment that you get out of something. Mm-hmm. When people ask him what his favorite comedy of all time is, mm-hmm. he says it's basic instinct <laughs> because he was in a theater and there was a, everyone's really amped up for it, right? There's a lot of buzz around this movie, Sharon Stone, Michael mm-hmm. Douglas. There's lesbianism. There's murder. Mm-hmm. It's very sort of salacious. He gets in there. The audience is ready. There's a guy in the audience who cannot stop laughing <laughs> at every single thing that happens. He is laughing louder and louder to the point where <laughs> it is so yeah. infectious. Yeah. That the entire audience, by the end, is just hooting and hollering, and it's basically like a midnight showing of Rocky yeah, Horror. That's amazing. He said, Basic Instinct is without a doubt the funniest movie I've ever seen, because I cannot get that out of my head. This guy just having jouissance watching mm-hmm. it. And I thought, he really needs to see this movie yeah. to understand, like, <laughs> this is yeah, like next level with Showgirls. Yeah, if you think, uh, if you did, had that reaction for Basic Instinct, then, you know, you might not be ready for Showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> you might, no, to, uh, especially if you go to, like, one of the drag shows. Yeah. Oh, something. gosh, yeah, they're incredible. Um, one of the things that, uh, that really stood out to me was, I can't remember who it was, but there was a quote from one of your contributors in this film was, this movie seems like it was written by a 13-year-old imagining what adults do at night. Yeah. That hit me right where I live because that's when I saw this for the first time, I'm like, this is how adults function, <laughs> right? This is, this is real life. Yeah, this is exactly yeah. what they do. This yeah. is how sex works. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's basically just nothing but tawdriness mm-hmm. and betrayal and double crosses yeah. and you know social climbing. <laughs> and I, I'm wondering, I'm trying to figure out if I have a question in here that or if I just on, roll with it <laughs> or if I just wanted to uh, put a pin on something I really liked yeah. from the movie. Um, but in terms of when you look at the, you spent a lot of time talking about Paul Verhoeven in this movie, mm-hmm. a little less time talking about Joe Esterhaus. Mm-hmm. What is your overall assessment of Joe Esterhaus's writing and is Showgirls like sort of the epitome of Joe Esterhaus's writing or is it kind of the nadir? Yeah. You know, I, I think as you know, our, our resident expert for both our, you know, is Adam Naiman and, and he, um, he, he kind of goes through, I think, you know, understanding where Joe kind of came from. He was a journalist. He started as a journalist and then kind of moved into screenwriting. And, and with, with him too, he was also, that was a time where, um, I don't, I forget what film it was, but he basically made a, a one or two million dollars on like a pitch written on a napkin. So like there was just insane amounts of money being like thrown at like writers and it was for these like high concept, uh, films. And so, you know, I, I think Showgirls is, you know, is classic, uh, Esther House. You know, the, the dialogue is, over the top and ridiculous and offensive. Um, and yeah, it just has these very interesting little, uh, what David Schmader calls as totems, you know? It's absolutely, I've never heard anyone talk like this in real life or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who was it that pointed out? Yeah, like that the most uh, misogynistic lines in the film come all come from women. <laughs> <laughs> I... I there's a point in the movie where you focus on an exchange that Nomi has with Crystal. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I hate you. I know. 
There's a long pause, and she just sniffs. <laughs> at that point, I had to stop the documentary because I was laughing so fucking hard at just putting a button on that. I thought, yeah, this is an exchange real people have. Yeah. For sure. It's the sniff. Yeah, that, 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 that's like a very famous sniff. Like, totally. You know, within the, the, the showgirls. And I had totally forgotten about it, <laughs> yeah. too. Um, but, you know, there's some, there's some acting going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just there's, there's so many little moments that, you know – the lines that jump out and you know it coming from it as a fan you know it's like trying to find ways to include all these things and i knew the sniff had had to be in there yeah totally how uh you know how how to do it is you know no one tells you that (laughs) i i read one review that said uh it did not include his favorite line from showgirls do you remember this uh yes um the line was what was the line it was no come back when you you fuck fuck some of that baby fat off yeah yeah which wow yeah that's uh that's a rough line it's it's interesting to me because as a video editor there's some kind of wonkish film criticism in here which mm-hmm. i really like like the violate the 180 rule mm-hmm. the violation of 180 but mm-hmm. it seems like verhoven is doing that intentionally mm-hmm. were you concerned at all about getting too wonkish on this or if if you're making a movie about showgirls that has been examined over and over and over again, and you've got people who've seen it dozens, maybe even hundreds of times, did that concern bother you? Or did you go, I need to go even deeper? Yeah. You know, I, I think when I stumbled upon Adam's book and he had that, uh, that breakdown, the visual breakdown of that, you know, the epic Spago doggy chow scene where, you know, it, it's very, right. it's about doggy it's, that's chow what it is. God. Like that, that's the thing that everyone remembers about that. And so when I was reading <laughs> that, when I got to that part in his book, you know, my mind was just kind of blown. I was like, Oh, there's all, not that there isn't other stuff going on, but like I had, I was never, it was never aware of all of that. So well, no, it just didn't jump out, you know? Yeah. Like uh, on its face, the first thing you're to remember is them talking earnestly yeah. about eating doggy chow. Right. And then they're talking about the way that their breasts fit in, in clothes and, you know, it right. just becomes this weird kind of back and forth. But yeah, Verhoeven did this very interesting thing where midway through uh, as they cheers their champagne, you know, he flips the, the camera around and violates the 180 degree, which, you know, anyone in film school, you know, basic, yeah. you know, camera scene structure you know knows not to do and uh it was very intentional because they are talking about how they are you know you're not me i'm not like you you know we're all whores you know yeah so they you know that that's the point where you know he'd like to say no me became crystal (laughs) as a documentarian there's got to always be temptation to insert yourself into this did you ever have that temptation uh maybe early on i was curious i i didn't really know how you know, if it was just going to be the contributors kind of right. pushing the forward, the story forward or what. But, um, you know, we didn't shoot a frame of video for this. It was all audio interviews. When uh, I read that before I saw this, yeah, that was absolutely mystifying to me. I go, I can't believe there's a new documentary that doesn't have one new frame of new footage. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It, and, you know, we – and so I, I was just blown away. I mean, me – me personally, you know, I'm not a writer. I'm not a film critic, you know, and so right. um, I was just fascinated by all these interesting opinions around the film. And so um, that w- I really started there, you know, and started with the interviews and the contributors. And then once I started speaking to everybody and collecting the interviews, then, you know, kind of be- began editing. And it was kind of in the editing process where um, just by research for the film, went back and watched all of Verhoeven's other films and with that, you know, th- that was, I think, my contribution was bringing those elements in visually where no one's really talking about, oh, it's just like this moment here. And then, you know, I wanted to find a way kind of making a new subplot where then yeah. Verhoeven's characters are interacting with showgirls and commenting on the contributors experience with that the was film. Cool, so yeah. there's this kind of layered uh, approach with uh, the contributors, showgirls, and then Verhoeven's films in general. Well, the reason I ask about inserting yourself, I think there's always got to be temptation of wanting to be the audience surrogate mm-hmm. and guiding them, you know, saying, you know, you could have opened the film very easily by talking about your experience at 2005, yeah. you know, the two, the 20 year or whatever it was, yeah. 2015. Um, that to me seems like a really almost natural entry point And, Probably since it's the most obvious to me, that's one you want to kick to the side immediately. I yeah. Go ahead. But <laughs> the point I want to make is 
in terms of marketability, I think that type of thinking will creep in, you know, because it's like people aren't going to get it unless I sort of hold their hand, mm-hmm. right? So as you're making this movie, were you thinking at all about how you were going to market it or, you know, were you thinking about film festivals or was this just going to be like a fun sort of passion thing that you did for a group of friends and maybe uh, a small sort of subset of super fans? I was in, definitely inspired by other – there had been a few films like this, like Room 237 and right. Los Angeles Plays Itself. And so <laughs> kind of after seeing those, I, I was just inspired by what can be done, you know? And as an editor, I knew that, like, this was a topic I was interested in. I knew enough about it to start researching and, and diving in. And, you know, I knew that there was going to be – you know, there were some concerns in the beginning – of my own just with no you're not going to see any talking heads and these are people that you've never heard of before talking (laughs) about the film so it's not like these are household names you know they're all amazing and brilliant but you know is is there going to be a little bit of disconnect and i was surprised by how much you know just i'm I'm not (laughs) articulating this uh well, but you know, just it's surprised by the way that like it's been received so far, you know. Yeah, I I found I didn't really care who these people were. Yeah, as it turned out, I mean, it's not like there was a, a docu series I really enjoyed on CNN called The History of Comedy, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's got you know like Carl Reiner and Jerry Seinfeld and yeah. like every heavy hitter from the history of comedy in the last you know, 50, 60 years. And you, you kind of want to see them. Mm-hmm. If it were just their voices, I think you'd miss something like that. But when they're folks that are not household names like mm-hmm. that, you can tell, like, they establish ethos quickly mm-hmm. by the way they talk about the film. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that was a really good choice. And, and I, I mean, it's amazing to me how propulsive the movie was mm-hmm. because you move it along at a really, really nice clip. And so, <laughs> um, how long did it take you to do this? So I interviewed for about six months. It took about six months to get through all the interviews just because I had one audio kit that I was FedExing back and forth, uh, to, and were from. you sending like USB mics to, uh, uh it was a, like a zoom. Okay. Kit. Like yeah. I have right here. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. and so we got on Skype. I basically had a, a setup very similar to this, although they were on one side of the computer, I was on the other. Um, and it just took some time to get those, um, you know, that media back and forth, which was yeah. nerve wracking when, you know, your interview media is uh, up on a plane somewhere <laughs> with FedEx and you're like, I hope it arrives. Okay. Um, so that was about six months. And yeah. I hope they packed the, <laughs> the box correctly. It, I, I had directions. Okay. I, I talked them through <laughs> as soon as we got on, on camera, you know, it was like, okay, now plug this into here, uh, do this, clip it right here. All right. Do you see the levels? We're good to go. Well, what's funny is when I read that you did these all via Skype, I've done interviews via Skype. They yeah. sound like shit. Yeah, I knew it. Yeah, we, I didn't want right. to record a Skype interview. So, so you basically were just record. They were recording their audio into a Zoom as you interviewed them via Skype. You're so right. you could have a conversation, but we never hear you. Right. So they just needed a mic and record it like we're doing right now. Exactly. God, yeah. that's genius. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, what a what a great like low budget solution for doing this. I God, I've never thought of that. I'm gonna have to consider that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was. And it allowed me to work on it on my own in my free time without having to raise money, without having to, uh, you know, start bringing other people on before I kind of knew what it was. This was my first documentary, uh, feature. And so I, I knowing approaching a, a subject like this is, is, is big, you know, and, you know, just not knowing what it would be, what it would turn out. You know, I, I edited it for maybe a year and a half, you know, wow. there was, multiple versions and you know i'd show a few friends and you know co-workers people you know who i respected their uh, opinions and you know make some changes and stuff and then by the towards the end you know i had a amazing producer come on ariana garfinkel and she gave me like the final notes and was like i think we're ready to start submitting and so we we <laughs> we and we submitted a work in progress which was very nice to know that i can put work in progress in front and people yeah. will know like music is coming graphics are coming um <laughs> and then yeah tribeca was one of the first ones we submitted to and that was the first one we heard back from so was this like entirely self-funded uh i mean for the the first half yeah yeah sure, yeah. yeah yeah and then once yeah once it, you kind of get into a festival then we had to raise some money to finish you know did you have designs on documentary filmmaking before this? 
so yeah, I'm a television editor by trade, right? Yeah, and so I do a lot of um, like news docu stuff. Okay. Uh, I had one of my previous project was uh, I was the editor on one of the episodes for Fox uh, followed around um, soccer players in their road to the World Cup. Um, and so I cut one of those episodes and. Um, yeah, I'd always been a, a fan of documentaries and, and I think that was something I kind of wanted to focus more on, you know, when I was a kid making films and I, you know, you just make narrative films, you know, you're, you're right. playing yeah, around with your friends and, and, you know, kind of just recreating the movies that you like, uh, but in your backyard and, uh, yeah, I just, over the years just kind of slowly drifted away from, from narrative and, yeah. and, uh, just, this just ended up being like a perfect project. Has this thing opened doors for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, it's it's taken me around the world, and you know, obviously, people that watch it, you know, just kind of get it, and they, they're interested in figuring, you know, knowing like what's what's next, and you know, it, it it's weird because it feels like right now, you know, Denver is like the probably one of the last festivals like I'll go to for it because we're nearing our year end cycle uh, of it. But right. once it's out, you know, um, distributed, then like it'll have its own other life yeah, which would be cool so it feels it feels like there it's hard to not feel like i'm winding down but i know like yeah it's like you know it hasn't started yet you've got a whole second act yeah with it definitely which i mean we we talked about this slightly off mic but there are plans for it to get released yes yeah yeah, yeah. we have a sales team who are finishing up the distribution deal right now uh with a u.s distributor and uh, a distributor in the UK too right now. So okay, that went that I know. Um, has anyone who's been associated with Showgirls seen this or reached out to you? Um, I do, no, no. The the answer of that is no. The interesting thing though was our premiere in Tribeca. Um, there was a guy sitting in the front row. It was the theaters in New York are very small, so mm-hmm. I could kind of see everybody. So after the Q and A was done, um, he came right up and walked up to me and. He introduced himself and he's like, hi, my name is Charlie. My dad produced Showgirls. And I was like, amazing. (laughs) So his dad was Charles Evans and uh, was one of the producers on Showgirls. And he came to our premiere. He he loved it. He was a huge fan. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I hope once it's becomes out, you know, available to wider audiences, then, you know, uh, the cast and crew will check it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everything that I've read about this movie, it seems people tend to love it. Have you gotten any negative reaction to it? No one's really said anything personally to me. I mean, there's been there've been some some mediocre reviews, but I mean, every, all the reviews have been, you know, pretty overwhelmingly positive. Um, and a, a lot of the, if there's critiques, I get them about the same things, like people who aren't kind of familiar with the the kind of a non traditional documentary like okay. this, you know, not seeing the talking heads, being like a little confused about who's talking, but. Um, you know, at that point, it's, it's less about who's talking and the idea, you right. know, that's being uh, presented. You know, the, the contributors are kind of surrogates for the audience, you know, as, a, you know, just general audiences right. in general. So. so it's funny watching this movie. I was, just, I was filled with so much glee the whole time because it was combining two things that I, I think about all the time. Again, film criticism and like camp movies mm-hmm. um, because I and I thought about this as I was driving over. My wife gives me so much shit for this, but I love the movie Karate Kid 3, (laughs) which is a terrible, terrible movie. (laughs) But I was thinking, it really is camp because, uh, who is it? Susan Sontag Mm -hmm. refers to it as um, uh, failed seriousness. And I was thinking about the Karate Kid 3, and I'm like, okay, so you've got a plot of this evil rich guy who decides to take a month out of his life to ruin the life of a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) And you go... Who thought that was a good idea? And everyone's playing it so seriously. At, at one point, he and John Kreese, who plays the evil sensei, uh, are standing there laughing like cartoon villains for a solid minute. <laughs> Just laughing loud. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going, my God, who does that? Right. <laughs> and so it's totally failed seriousness. Yeah. Which, uh, which is fascinating to me because you, you have three sort of arguments in this movie. Masterpiece, mm-hmm. piece of shit, mm-hmm. and masterpiece of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think you're very clever in the way that you don't actually land on one of those. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to ask you to give your opinion because that would give up the ghost. Mm-hmm. But when people have watched this movie, I'm assuming most of them come with an opinion about where Showgirls actually falls. Mm-hmm. What do the majority of them say? 
You know, I, I th- the the interesting thing is, you know, there isn't one uh, one definitive take on Showgirls. You know, it is multiple things to multiple people. As you know, films are. You know, everyone kind of brings their own. Um, you know their own experience to each you know each film that they watch but um with something like showgirls you know they're the the overwhelming like the majority you know it was obviously rejected uh violently when it came out and this is kind of how i I attributed you know the masterpiece piece of shit masterpiece of shit to kind of the eras that it has had so you know it was bombed when you know on upon first release uh masterpiece was um you know the cult where you know the cult and queer audiences like embraced it took it in saying this film isn't for you this is for us we will take (laughs) it now thank you um we will you know we will incorporate it into the the fabric of our, our dna and then um the third which uh masterpiece of shit um, the, the redemption where, you know, it's now having this kind of renaissance like with, among critics and, you know, film theory and people enjoy talking about it now, um, whereas they didn't. And I think because it's because of Act 2, it's giving us Act 3. You yeah. know, I, I don't think that you would have um, the response to to critics and, and everything now if, if it hadn't been, you know um, – worshipped you know at the midnight hour for the last 25 years you know i think that queer audiences and cult fandom had made this movie you know what is it that appeals to the queer community about this movie that's one thing that's always kind of puzzled me yeah um i I mean you you talk about that in, in the film and you know there's sort of uh revenge uh pieces to it but but what is it about it that that the queer community has picked up on that has given this film another life or contributed to it. I mean, I, I think it is just it, as soon as you hit play, you know, like as <laughs> our, 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 our uh, contributor, Jeffrey Conway, a poet, you know, he's like, you know, I love that line where he's like, the moment you see Nomi's face on, on the, as she licks her lips on the highway and it, it's just nothing but bad, you know? Right. And, and so it, she well, sticks her thumb up like she's an alien right, imitating right. a human. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that, <laughs> While you're watching it, you know, you kind of know, like, okay, I don't think it was, this was the intent, but, um, I think queer audiences gravitate towards things like that, you know, like art that had been, you know, it isn't mainstream because it wasn't mainstream. I mean, it was kind of intended for mainstream audiences based on the studios, but, you know, it was rejected. And so I, and it's trashy, you know, it's vulgar, you know, as, you know, uh, some most gay, you know, gay and like, queer, yeah, you know, like, been, like if that's, you've been to a drag show, right? That's, that's, that's who we are. And, and, and that's, you know, we, that's fun. You know, that's fun. That's like the, how we, you know, uh, interact with each other, how we, and we basically have come to see, I think, Nomi Malone as, you know, uh, kind of like a queer superhero, Interesting. um, where she, you know, Matt Baum kind of, pinpointed on um how she herself her uh character struggle represents that of so many you know um queer you know people you know that you know i myself you know left my suburbs of detroit moved to chicago to go to film school you know nomi malone left her family and you know followed her dreams moved to the big city you know she uses her uh her intelligence her sexuality to you know get what she wants and you know that's an experience that i think a lot of us have had and so i think there's like a whole other layer that we can relate to uh, outside of like the glitz and like yeah. the seediness and obviously like the dancing i mean it's a beautiful film uh so much eye ca- candy but you know i think there is kind of that deeper layer that isn't always you know that wasn't obvious to me when i you know the first sure, yeah. couple years i was into it um but yeah I mean, you're right. The the film is visually arresting, but it's kind of a hero's journey. And one of the commentators brings up that every person that encounters Nobi immediately falls in love with her and wants to make her <laughs> the center of their lives, right? Which yeah. is so funny. Um, given, like, what an assaultive kind of personality right. she has, too. Yeah. Her, uh, her, what you said, baffling charisma. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, uh, I mean, when a simple question like, where are you from? And she destroys a basket of fries right. over that. And you go, why? Like, and different places. Yeah. <laughs> different places you go okay wow uh i'm sorry i didn't realize that was such a loaded question (laughs) one thing uh, i also wanted to ask you about because 
as I as I mentioned, and I think I was making my way into this question, but uh, I, I kind of diverted a little bit. I was just filled with glee watching this. And then we get to the rape of Molly, mm-hmm. who is the only decent person in the entire film. And to me, so going back to the definition of camp, that's failed seriousness. To me, that's failed seriousness, but in the, like, 180 degrees in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I... I kind of guess what he's going for, but it was just such a sour, soggy brain decision Mm -hmm. for that to be in the film. Mm -hmm. And for me, that film in You Don't Know Me, or I'm sorry, that scene in You Don't Know Me, that whole sequence where we're talking about Molly, almost feels a little bit out of place compared to the rest of the film. Is that fair critique? Yeah, I I think that the, the rape scene is something that audience, you know... Uh, or queer audiences still struggle with, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think like David Schmader, you know, he doesn't, he skips it when he, when he, for his live screening. So, you know, there is, you do have, you know, you're having a good time. You're having a, you know, you're laughing. And then this like horrible, tragic, you know, brutal scene pops up in the film and, and you know, the, the tone shifts and, and it's just, everything stops, you know? Right. And I think that they, I knew, it would be hard to make a film about showgirls and gloss over that scene. No, I mean, you have to address it. Yeah. And then that was also something that came up with the, the reoccurring sexual violence with yeah. all of Verhoeven's stuff is, is shocking. It, it, it's just, in, I, I mean, I'm not even kidding. In every single film, there is something, you know, uh, hmm. that happens that, you know, it, it shouldn't. And, and so it, I was shocked to see how much that pops up. And so it was just, I knew it had to be addressed and, you know, I, um, the void, you know, the, the heart of, of, you don't know me is April Kidwell. And I reached out to her because she played Jesse Spano right. in Saved by the Velvet musical and Nomi Malone in, uh, the off Broadway showgirls musical. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. She inhibited both these, uh, roles that Elizabeth Berkeley played. Um, and you know, we, once we started talking, you know, asking her about her, her experience with the film and the projects and, you know, she just was brave enough to, to share her story with, with her own, uh, with her own rape. And it was, it just completely just, Oh, just tragic, 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 yeah. and yeah, her story is harrowing. Yeah, in you know the she's just she's just incredible, an incredible human being, and so um, in that experience and the way her tying her um her her experience on stage got allowed her to get through the the PTSD that she in her personal life was experiencing, and so. I, you know, that, that to me was just the heart of, of what, you know, um, what, how we, you know, how we take a film or it doesn't even have to be film. how we take art and we use it, um, the way that we need to use it. Well, Kenneth Burke has a theory called equipment for living. Yeah. You know, there's, we, we watch films, we watch TV shows, we listen to music to see our own experiences either reflected or subverted or. Like, we take what we need. It gives us equipment for living so that we understand ourselves better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes a mirror. I mean, Verhoeven himself said, you know, I hold up a mirror to society. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I'm not sure that you do. <laughs> I, I don't know if I agree with your own self-assessment there right. of your work. But works like this do hold up a mirror regardless of their intent. Mm-hmm. And so to hear that from April, I thought her using this to get through her own trauma, mm-hmm. which I'm just sort of echoing what you said. Yeah. But yeah, that was very powerful because, and I thought that was probably the most nimble way you could handle that rape scene. And, you know, there was in early cuts, I, I there was a lot of hesitation around that. And, and you know, to me, there, there was just no way to tell April's story and with, 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 with I mean, she was brave enough to, to you know, share it. I had no idea that, that that was her experience with it. And, right. you know, this that was something um, that was just, you know, the, it's the heart of the film, you know. So I, it, I, it would be unfair to, <laughs> to not, you know, to not share share that with uh, – because that's, that's 
yeah, that's the heart of it. Absolutely, 100%. Well, I'll tell you what. I know uh, you got a screening to get to. We're I recording do. this before a screening, so I don't want to keep you too long because uh, I could. I mean, I could ask you questions about <laughs> this all day, and uh, I don't want to turn this into a gushing fanboy interview <laughs> because I adored this film. Well, thank you. It felt like it was made for me, and like any time you can make something uh, where people tell you that. I mean, that's got to be a great feeling, right? It, it feels so good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it feels great to you know to hear that and. Yeah, just just it, unexpected, you know, how, how much people yeah. have uh, kind of embraced the film and, you know, the things that they've pulled out from it, you know? Right. I, I can't wait to own it. So whenever it's available, cool. uh, send it to me and because I think I enjoyed it more than actually watching Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, <itself>. good. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy. Um, but now's the time on the show when we do plugs. So where can people find you? Where can they find you? Don't know me. Um, I know some of that is still sort of in progress, yep. but anything you want to plug, do it now. Um, we, you can, the easiest way to follow the journey, know me's journey is on social on Instagram. Uh, you don't know me film, uh, and Twitter same. You don't know me film, uh, as with the website, you don't know me film.com. Perfect. So. What I'll do is I'll link to that in the show notes. Perfect. As well as a companion blog piece. You can find that at John of all trades.us. That's J O N of all trades.us. On social, I'm at J-O-A-T pod across platforms. Uh, Jeffrey McHale, this was an enormous pleasure. Thank I, you so I much. was looking forward to this all week. <laughs> as soon as uh, I talked to the, my press contact here, Neil, I go, dude, you got to get me an interview with you. <laughs> so, uh, and he did, and this was fantastic. I hope the audience loves it tonight, and I wish you continued success. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, this was fun. And that'll do it for episode 233 of the John of All Trades podcast with Jeffrey McHale, the writer, director, and editor of You Don't Know Me. What an awesome documentary. I adored this movie. I love this interview. Jeffrey, thank you for the time. Thank you for the insight. And thank you for creating one of my favorite documentaries I've seen in a long time. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Training, content, engagement, and podcasting that will help your organization tell its story in a new and unique way. Our sponsor is Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, Four Degrees can help you do it better. Whether you're building a website, doing online marketing, doing online advertising, they will get your message in front of the people who need to see it most on the platforms in which they exist. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Follow me on social media. J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle. That's across platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. You'll notice there was no first jobs this week. We've got a special surprise coming here the week of Thanksgiving regarding that. But those go up on Mondays usually. New episodes drop on Wednesday. You can listen to John of All Trades on iTunes, Stitcher, or pretty much any other podcatcher that's out there. Just hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. I'm back here next week with my last episode from Denver Film Festival, and it's a good one. It's a big one, and I'm super pumped to bring it to you because I thought we had a great conversation. So that'll be my last dispatch from DFF42. It's been a great ride, and until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.